Let's join in prayer. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word. It echoes down through the ages and into eternity. And we pray that as we think about this last instalment in the life of Solomon, things that go terribly wrong, please grant us wisdom and understanding. Bless the things that I've prepared that we all might be encouraged, even though the story is bleak. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we do come to this last message in this series of 1 Kings, chapters 1 to 11, and I can finally say that we've got there. This is the 19th message in this series. We began five months ago at the start of March, and this is the end in more ways than one. It's also the end of Solomon's reign. It's also the end of Solomon. If you've been following along, you'll know that most of the story so far in chapters 1 to 11 has focused on the rise and rise of Solomon as king and the prosperity of the kingdom under his rule. You'll have heard me say too that after reaching the peak of his wealth and glory, there's only one way down from the summit. But even then it's a bit of a shock at how swiftly Solomon fell. Things are going downhill and they're going downhill very quickly. And you know what happens when things go downhill, don't you? They increase in pace. The old saying, a rolling stone gathers no moss, does not apply here at all. Instead, this is a things can get out of hand very quickly kind of scenario. This is the snowball effect. When that snowball rolls down the hill, covered with snow, it just gets bigger and bigger and goes faster and faster. So much so that by the end of the chapter... Not only is Israel in trouble as a nation after knowing peace for so many years on all sides, but the king himself dies and all his glory vanishes like a flower of the field under the scorching sun. What's more, this final section of Solomon's reign focuses us on God's response, his just response to Solomon's continued disobedience. And we ought not overlook that aspect of the unfolding events that quickly because it's evident in all that followed. Solomon's actions caused others to suffer. Solomon's actions brought the kingdom down. Now, if you think we've been here before, thinking over this cause and effect principle, you're right, we have. And if you think that maybe this was one of the major themes to come out of the series on the life of David a couple of years ago, again, you're right. In fact, it's quite scary how Solomon's life almost became a carbon copy of his father's in this respect. At a heart level, things were the same, although their sins were different. David reached his high point just before he sinned with his adultery 
with Bathsheba and murdering her husband. And from then on, it was all downhill. The kingdom was never the same. Consequences everywhere. And now here, David and Bathsheba's son, Solomon, has just reached his highest point in the kingdom, his summit, and his sin, not with one woman, but a thousand women, and adopting their gods and walking away from all the conditional promises that God gave to him to obey with his whole heart. Now that's all come undone. And there are terrible consequences for his kingdom and for the people under his rule and his care. Four things before us this morning. First see in the text of verses 9 to 13, the just anger of God. Clearly our text opens with this, but why? Why is God angry? And why is God righteously, justly angry? Well, simply because in his grace, he gave Solomon blessing upon blessing. He heaped these on Solomon lavishly, superabundantly. Wisdom for a start, which he asked for. And then on top of that, riches and glory, which he didn't ask for. All these blessings conditional upon his obedience to the Lord's clear and righteous stipulations. And now Solomon has just turned his back on all these blessings. He's treated them and he's treated the Lord as nothing, as dirt, as refuse, as rubbish. The Lord had every reason to be righteously angry. Solomon's sin is amplified by the fact that God has appeared to him twice and that he'd been instructed by God verbally and also in the scriptures themselves in commands given him long ago to Moses. Don't do these things, Solomon. One commentator says here that there are certain fallacies destroyed about why we sin. One is the example fallacy, which says, if only we had better examples set for us, we wouldn't sin. No. Solomon had his father's example, both good and bad, set before him. And yet Solomon sinned as he did. Then there's the experience fallacy, which says that if you're given living experiences of God's presence... If God spoke to you verbally and you saw God some form, then you won't sin. No. God appeared to Solomon twice. And it couldn't have been clearer, could it? And then there's the educational fallacy, which says if only people were better educated, then we wouldn't sin. Ha! Solomon was the wisest man in the world. He didn't need to go to university. He was a university. And yet he chose this path. The problem is not with example, experience or education. The problem is with our hearts. And Solomon did evil because he loved evil. It's fairly simple. He allowed that seed of sin to grow within him and when it bore fruit... It was ugly fruit. 
And so God was righteously and justifiably angry as he is about all sin, your sin, my sin. So angry, in fact, that his holy wrath meant that his only son had to die in order to deal with sin forever. And we ought never underestimate how seriously God takes any affront to his righteous rule and how disobedience and rebellion lies at the heart of what sin is and what sin does. Second, the text focuses upon the chastening hand of God. With reference to God noting Solomon's sins and his right, righteous anger at these, you might respond, but, but aren't God's children viewed by God as being righteous in him and unstained and, unhol- and holy? Well, yes, that's right. In terms of our standing before God, that is so true. Our status will never be altered. Having been justified by faith, God no longer looks at our sin, but he looks at Christ who covers our sin and clothes us in his righteousness. But having said that, which is true, we should also remember that God does not ignore sin in our lives. How can he? What parent would note the character flaws and the faults in their child and ignore them because They're his children. They enjoy status of son or daughter. So God must too, in noting our sin, seek to correct what is wrong by whatever means he must because that son or daughter is precious to him and he cannot bear to see sin wreak havoc in their witness as it will and does. And so the chastening, chastising hand of God comes into the picture, all to restore an erring son to the path of life. And so we read that God and his purpose and plan for chastening and disciplining Solomon and the nation picked up three chastening rods to afflict the wayward king and the nation. Verses 14 to 22 Record the rising up of the old enemy, the Edomites. And here the grand irony is that Solomon married an Egyptian woman to secure peace and yet they will become the very ones who nurture the future enemy of Israel. Verses 23 to 25 record the rising up of a marauding band from Syria. And this too is ironic because Syria will soon be absorbed into Assyria who will rise to power and take the northern ten tribes into exile and afflict Israel. And verses 26 to 40 describe the rise of Jeroboam, the man who would divide the ten northern tribes from the southern tribes and who would plunge the northern tribes into the idolatry that Solomon has just adopted for his wives and himself. Soon the whole nation will be plunged into it and will not see the blessing of God again for centuries. So in all this, that wonderful blessing of God of having peace on all sides was removed. 
turmoil within and without of the punishments of God against sin. The last example of Jeroboam is a little bit different from the first two, but it's clear here that God was raising up adversaries to afflict Solomon, to stand against him and to bring the kingdom down instead of building it up. And with that in mind, we're told of the story of Hadad. He was an Edomite from a nation whose Israel had been fighting over their southern border, over whom Solomon's father David had won a victory or two. And so as a young boy, Hadad, from Edom's royal family, had managed to escape these wars and fled to Egypt only to find refuge with Pharaoh, who brought him up in the royal court, married his wife's sister and brought him up as their son. So when David died, Hadad figured it was safe to go back to Edom and eventually did, all the while nurturing this grudge against David for so many years that was so full-blown against Solomon when the opportunity arose and he became a veritable thorn in the flesh as often as he could. And then Jeroboam, well, while Hadad was an Edomite, Jeroboam was an Israelite, a fellow Israelite, a citizen of the nation. Now, he had shown excellent leadership skills and the king had put him in charge of some part of the labour force. But then that day came when the prophet Ahijah appeared to him wearing a new cloak which he quickly whipped off and tore into 12 pieces and handed 10 of them to Jeroboam. And this message stirred Jeroboam to rise up against the king and so Solomon sought to kill him. What's common in each of these cases, both Hadad and Jeroboam, is it was the Lord who raised these individuals up to fight Solomon. They weren't accidents of the time. They were instruments in the Lord's hands to afflict his people. And he does this because he is sovereign over the nations. Kings and queens rise and fall because of God's will, not because of their will. As been said before, history is his story. And while we may not be able to fully understand what God is up to in the world, In the stage of the world, here and now, we have this assurance that one who controls the movements of the planets knows exactly what he is doing, all for the cause of the glory of his Son, according to his all-wise plan, in spite of Solomon's sin. Third, the text points us to the amazing faithfulness of God. Now that might surprise you, given everything that this chapter reveals about God's anger and his discipline, but this is entirely consistent with the character of God. He cannot be unfaithful to his promises. So we note what God promises in verse 39. Though he will chasten and discipline for his purposes, he, will say, he says, I will humble David's descendants because of this, but not forever. And it's those three words, but not forever, 
that are some of the greatest words in the scriptures. God may abandon his people for a time, but not forever. God may be angry for a time, but not forever. His faithfulness to his promises means he can say to Solomon in verses 11 to 13 that though he will tear away the kingdom from Solomon, he will not do it during his lifetime. He'll do it, that's for certain, but he'll leave one tribe for David's line to continue. Even the prophet Abijah says as much to Jeroboam in verse 36. See, even in his anger, God remembered mercy and because of his faithfulness, God will keep his promises. He'll hold up his end of the covenant he made with David that one of his descendants will sit on the throne forever and ever and think of that for a moment. If God hadn't made this concession, if God hadn't kept the tribe of Judah going, then where would our Messiah have come from? Where would Jesus have been born to? What hope then for our salvation if the tribe of Judah had been lost forever? The promise would be null and void and salvation a forlorn hope. So it's an amazing thing the amazing faithfulness of God that God in his anger remembered mercy. The hope of our salvation remained and that in the fullness of time God sent forth his son born of woman, born under the law, born to be the fulfilment of everything that the line of David ever stood for so that when he came they called him son of David. And God did what he did through him. This promise that God made long ago to David will be, would be fulfilled and the longed-for Messiah would appear, bringing together all these great themes of the scriptures of covenants and kings and promises and thrones and prophecies and genealogies so that like a jigsaw they all fit together beautifully. So that... As God planned from the very beginning, all might give honour and praise to Jesus, the son of David. And then fourth, before we leave the text, you might then wonder what happened to Solomon. You might wonder how everything that seems so promising from the word go ends so quickly with barely a fanfare and a very pedestrian ending. So we read of the demise of the king in verses 41 to 43. Now the rest of the acts of Solomon and all that he did and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the acts of Solomon? And the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years and Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. Did you catch that? Solomon's actual death, unlike his father's David's death, was passed over. 
little mention made. This man who occupied the glorious limelight that he occupied as king, the most famous man in all the world, died and nothing was said about it except that he died. It's such a contrast to have all this glory and then just say, but he died. Did he ever repent? To that, the best answer is, we just don't know. Will we see Solomon in heaven? Well, you could make out a case for saying yes, because Solomon was so clearly chosen by the Lord and loved by the Lord. But you could make out a case for no. Because Solomon, Solomon's walk with the Lord went more than pear-shaped. He abandoned the Lord. I think the best answer is we don't know. I would side with I think so, but can't say that with certainty. Many commentators do think so, but as always, it's best to leave this one with God. After all, he is the judge of all hearts and knows all things and we are not him in that respect and the final say is not ours. But it's good to think upon that. The king in all his glory. What did that glory amount to? Nothing. So how do we process the life of Solomon? This mixed bag of good and bad, this one who was so loved by the Lord but did not return the love that he had received, this king who was the richest and the wisest of all men, well, rather than condemn him or be his judge, let's be thankful for the life of this man and do so for the following reasons. We can give thanks for the life of Solomon because being the best of men, he was man at best and he reminds us of our fallenness and our need for a saviour. We can give thanks for the life of Solomon because he was a man who struggled with the same idols that are around 21 centuries later, money, sex and power. And though he succumbed to them, his example gives us a warning not to succumb to them. We can give thanks for the life of Solomon because it gives us this warning of our weakness and reminds us to take heed lest we think we stand and it tells us that pride comes before a fall and it reminds us that having everything in the world but forfeiting your soul is a terrible thing indeed. And then we can give thanks for the life of Solomon because he points us to someone greater than himself. If Solomon were our hope, then all hope would be lost. But he's not our hope. He's a flawed servant of God. The Lord Jesus Christ is our hope. He who was and is wiser than Solomon, holier than Solomon, richer than Solomon, a more faithful husband than Solomon, who obeyed when Solomon failed. He is the obedient son of David who will forever sit on the throne 
of David's line and he will perfectly rule and will constantly secure by his perfect life eternal peace and blessing. Remember Solomon brought heartache and punishment upon his people by his sin. Christ took the guilt of our sin and the punishment due upon himself. And by his obedience, he has secured for us a kingdom far better than the one Solomon ever built. For it will be one that has no end and one where the king who rules will never turn away from doing the Father's will. Yes, Solomon's kingdom may have been great, but in the kingdom of Jesus, the glory of the king will never, ever fade. As Jesus said himself, now one greater than Solomon is here. And you can be in his kingdom. You can be in the kingdom of Jesus in which the glory will never fade. By grace, you can be there and you can see it. By grace, by trusting in the true son of David himself whose reign will stretch, as we will sing in a moment, from shore to shore till moons shall rise and set no more. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we bring thanks to you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our Saviour, for him who was and is greater than all of Solomon's greatest deeds because he never failed. He served you well, obediently, completely, even suffering death on our behalf. So we praise you for him. We thank you for these things we learn from Solomon's life. Please write them upon our hearts and point us to Jesus once more. We pray in his name. Amen.